1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Shohini Chatterjee, a host of this channel, and a PhD student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Professor Sarah Richardson on her new book, The Maternal Imprint, The Contested Science of Maternal Fetal Effects, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Professor Richardson is Professor of the History of Science and of Studies of Women, Gender and Sexuality at Harvard University. Professor Richardson is a leading scholar whose work argues for conceptual rigor and social responsibility in scientific research on sex, gender, sexuality, and reproduction. She directs the Harvard Gender Psy Lab, a collaborative interdisciplinary research lab dedicated to generating concepts, methods, and theories for biomedical research on sex and gender. Professor Richardson serves on the Standing Committees for Degrees in Social Studies and for the Mind, Brain, and Behavior Interfaculty Initiative at Harvard. Apart from the maternal uh, imprint, Professor Richardson is also the author of Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome. Welcome to New Books Network, Sarah.
1: Thanks, Sohini. Glad to be here.
0: We're thrilled to have you with us today. Um, could you begin by telling us what the basic idea of maternal fetal effects is? Um, is there a quick example you can give us that we um, all might be familiar with?
1: Well, yes, you may have heard of studies suggesting that uh, mothers who are overweight or who are stressed uh, make a, an, have an effect on their growing fetus, which has long-term implications for the offspring.
0: Right. Um, Could you tell us what is most important for people to understand about the impact of environmental elements during gestation?
1: Oh, certainly. Um, I think the first thing to understand is that uh, on the one hand, there's a whole set of findings from teratology, toxicology, um, suggesting that some uh, toxins can Across the placenta and influence fetal development in a well-documented negative way. On the other hand, there is a wider range of speculations about all manner of variations or exposures during the prenatal period um, and uh, uh, off, uh, offspring outcomes that sometimes are just small changes in lifetime risk factors for, say, chronic diseases. It's that second body of maternal fetal effects that uh, interests me most, sort of the last 20 to 25 years of research. And this work, I argue in the book, uh, is of a different flavor or register than this previous teratological work. It is a speculative field that is examining subtle, what I call cryptic, changes during the fetal period and their relationship to small uh, outcomes many, many decades later, often invoking the mechanism of epigenetics, which I, Sohini and I will probably talk about in a moment. Um, and so the most important thing I think to understand is that there's a whole range of claims in this arena, some of them very well established, involving an, ex, uh, an identifiable viable chemical toxin or exposure that in a dose-dependent way creates a gross developmental defect. Um, And this ranges all the way to the more subtle or cryptic effects um, with more questionable or uncertain mechanisms that are the focus of my book.
0: Right. Um, Could you describe germplasm theory and its importance for understanding the history of contestations over maternal pregnancy effects?
1: Yes, I start the book with um, the... Theory of August Weissman in the late 19th century that uh, all that we inherit is contained within the germ plasm, or what we would call the DNA, um, in the nucleus of the cell, and that this genetic material is contributed exactly equally by uh, the, the two parents. Um, and so that we could should expect an equal distribution of traits received from the mother and received from the father in the next generation. Um, I start with this because this foundational theory of modern genetics is challenged by the lineage of claims that I look at in this book, which suggest a greater effect on heredity and development um, from the maternal part than the paternal part. So it, it places this set of contestations that I examine in the book in the history of core concepts within genetics and genomics.
0: Could you give a brief overview of what maternal impression theories were and their enduring impact on medicine for many years?
1: Yes, so anytime that we discuss these sorts of claims about the long legacy of one's prenatal environment, we always have in our background the many hundreds of years even thousands of years across many cultural traditions of belief in the idea that the fleeting impressions they could be visual, sensory, taste, etc. of the mother while pregnant can directly impress themselves on the offspring shaping and molding its body and its character um, a tradition from which we have got some you know, very crude examples like a woman uh, getting a burn mark on her hand and the child being born with something similar on its hand, um, this kind of direct imprint um, to sometimes theories that uh, resemble in some ways the way people think today about stress or trauma um, during pregnancy and its influence on the brain and emotional state, future Um, psychopathy of the
0: child. Right. Um, You discussed the many factors that prejudice maternal effects research today. Could you talk a little bit about these biases and and why they're so often overlooked? Um, What implications does this have for our larger conversations about the limitations of um, statistics and big data methods in biomedical sciences?
1: Sure. Well, to start with the latter part of the question, as I mentioned before, the knowledge landscape, which within this field of maternal fetal effects today, is one that I characterize as cryptic or as cataloging claims that are causally cryptic. This crypticity is part of the landscape of claims making in the biomedical sciences and information sciences today more generally. So I think that some of the claims I have to make in the book about the nature of scientific discovery, the search for causality, and the fundamental questions about what it is we think science can know and predict uh, about risk during the prenatal period are actually generalizable to a whole set of questions about how knowledge is produced in a data intensive environment that often involves producing associations with uninterpretable causality between, um, small variations or exposures in one area and small outcomes in another ripple effects, so to say. Um, and so, yeah, to go back, um, I think, uh, could you repeat the first part of the sec- the question,
0: Zohini? Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the biases and, and why oh, bias? they're so often overlooked? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So in my um, previous work, Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome, and a lot of my work as a feminist science studies scholar, I'm looking at sources of bias in the sciences of sex, gender, sexuality, and reproduction. Um, That is less of a theme in this book, but I do absolutely look at uh, some of the ways in which inference and data collection and media coverage um, and so on are actually biased around this set of claims, sometimes called fetal origins research or developmental origins of health and disease. At the most fundamental level, I argue throughout the book that there is an often unquestioned assumption that the mother during the prenatal period is the strongest influence. Her behaviors, her direct imbibing of her environment is the most important thing. And there's a second assumption that the uh, early Fetal period is the period of greatest plasticity and greatest impressibility um, with long-term influences for development compared to any other developmental period. So these assumptions can become biases when they're not questioned. And looking particularly at the question of the overfocus on the mother as compared to, say, the influences of the father or partner or wider environment um, is carved into the field. For decades, the research has been done primarily on data collected in maternal fetal or uh, dyads without collecting comparable data for fathers and other caretakers. Um, That means that the field, while it can develop and discover lots of associations between uh, maternal experiences during pregnancy and offspring outcomes, such as say ADHD or obesity or depression, um, the field cannot actually test whether those are causal um, because other important confounding factors have not been measured. so I talk about how this becomes a cycle as there is tremendous hype around findings in this field, which, which are directly translated into a policy realm where there's, of course, great concern about protecting the lives of infants and mothers um, and then cycling back into the funding of research and the kinds of investments that scientists um And others are willing to make in certain kinds of research streams which have already shown plausibility or for which there is lots of available data.
0: Right, Um, this probably is is a big question but um, I want to ask what kind of discussions do you hope to challenge or create with this book among academics and scientists and in the general public?
1: Uh, It is a big question. Um, Among Scientists, uh, I'm asking, like we mentioned earlier, some fundamental questions about the way we know and the way we do science in a data-intensive environment. Um, For policy, I'm interested in the gap between public health claims targeting uh, women uh, and uh, mothers um, and the evidence available for those claims, so have an intensive um, Re examination of claims in maternal fetal epigenetic programming. And for a general audience, this is a book in the history and social studies of science relevant to the history of uh, women and, and their bodies as they've been treated in the history of science and medicine. Um, it is a book that looks um, at contestations and debates, moments of controversy in this area of science and examines how that has shaped the character of reasoning and claims making in the field. It's also a book about a really important concept in our world right now um, in the moment of the pandemic, which is risk. And how we launch risk claims, how we evaluate them, how we communicate them um, and how we as individuals come to um, incorporate those claims and risk in the area of maternal fetal effects is uh, the framework is basically one in which any level of risk is unacceptable. And I talk in the book about how, in this area of science, we're given very few tools to weigh risks in context in relation to each other. And there's a sort of totalizing perspective, again, where no risk is, is acceptable, um, and where where this in the, in this totalizing perspective, um, we find that um, there's only a frame in which the mother is ever helping her offspring or hurting her offspring. Um, And within that very restrictive way of thinking about public health and behavior and uh, the autonomy of the pregnant person, this can become a discourse of surveillance um, and extending medicalized constructs into uh, controlling women's behavior or punishing them for potential reproductive outcomes.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about how did prenatal care come about uh, in the 1930s? What what was it about that period that pushed for this and for the medical supervision of the mother in pregnancy?
1: Hmm. Um, Well, um, I mentioned a moment ago a long period of development for uh, the science of maternal fetal effects. And in a way... um, there had to be the developments in public health in the in the progressive movement in the first decades of the 20th century which um, created a large uh, public health interest in maternal and infant well-being grounding several streams of institutional development and academic study Uh, streams of research that are sustained today by um, major public health and economic development organizations, as Michelle Murphy has written about, and um, which uh, all of which created the research context and the institutional resources to build both fields of study and clinical practice. So by the 1930s, more knowledge was available, only slightly more, um, but more knowledge was available about how to counsel uh, women during the prenatal period. And this made possible um, to build a science of uh, prenatal influence in addition to the traditional practices around obstetrics and birth. Um, And this was also a period in which all people were being encouraged to expand their consultation of medical advice in their life, and the specializations within medicine were being established. So it along with a lot of other developments in medicine during this period, um, we find the birth of prenatal care, as well as fields like pedi- pediatrics, um, all of which are interested in offering expert advice and consultation to mothers um, and parents in the early years.
0: Right. Um, In your history of ideas about prenatal culture, you delve into its role as a folk science and how it gained a strong footing, even though it was directly at odds with mainstream genetics. Um, What lessons does this history have for contemporary discussions? Today is my first question. Um, for example, how does this relate to similar discussions about prenatal in, uh, influences or even the widespread misinformation provided by the anti-vax movement? Um, and the second question is, how how do largely unfounded theories gain such a strong hold on the public? Mm.
1: So, um, Sohini, you're referring to an early chapter in the book where I write about a version of maternal impressions theories, which I described earlier, that sprung up almost directly in response to the theories of August Weismann, that founder of the germplasm theory and modern modern genetic heredity. Um, and this this response what revived sort of Lamarckian ideas and ideas about maternal impressions to argue to the contrary of Weismann that mothers and pregnancy played a very Primary role in shaping the uh, future prospects of the individual over and above uh, their genetic endowment, and this movement I talk about primarily in an American context um, was vernacular, as you said. They weren't professional scientists, although some had uh, forms of expertise in the social sciences, in the clinical fields, um, and it was a progressive era eugenic um, philosophy of uplift through medical conditioning and proper hygiene and they were marked by their focus on the role of the gestational environment in shaping the offspring Um, and now i would correct this your question just a little bit in that I don't think that it's that their science was unfounded versus other sciences of the time. It was a formative period for many sciences and much was still to be established. They used empirical claims, they cited studies, now they may have been flawed, um, but at the time they were engaging with contemporary scientific discourse, and this socio... A medical form of production was quite typical for eugenic discourse as a whole at the time. Um, so I prefer to think of these different periods as not more informed or, or less informed, but as reflecting uh, the epistemic standards for entering the discourse of that time. And um, they were very on beat in being in touch with, for example, Weissman's um, theories. So, yes, um, the, the question of uh, the relationship to our moment with anti-vax movements and so on um, is an intriguing one because the episodes that I look at in the book do involve contestations over just what a fact is and just what science can know and the reach of science into realms of personal uh, life or bodily integrity. I'm not sure I have a particular lesson for that, just to say that um, we don't expect or know really a world where um, public health claims of this sort um, are uh, simply... Absorbed and taken up by an unquestioning public. And so this goes to a set of questions not really engaged by, by this book, but I would like to encourage others to engage, which is the reception of these scientific ideas across diverse audiences. Um, you know, I'd love to see more empirical work um, by feminist scholars um, looking at the uptake um, and the experience of messaging that is coming from these public health fields, for example, or a little bit more at the circulation of these ideas in the media and in popular culture.
0: Absolutely. Um, at the end of your book, you make a call for a refocusing of priorities away from the difficult to pin down s- um, sciences of the effects of intrauterine events towards um, concrete, more structural Um, social policies, such as access to housing and freedom from violence. Do you believe um, uh, epigenome-wide association studies um, can be helpful at all in securing the well-being of infants?
1: You know, I think that is sincerely the hope of the researchers in this field. I think they feel under-resourced and that maternal and infant outcomes um, always need a boost to try to get energy and effort and they're working using the language of genetics and epigenetics to try to um i think not only explore scientific hypotheses but to somehow elevate the urgency of these issues in the wider sphere Mm -hmm. so in that sense um if they if their intuitions are right then maybe it is a good thing to continue doing the research but on the other hand we have to look clearly at the fact that 25 years of research in this area has not led to any public health interventions that have improved outcomes. And that we do know lots of things we can do in our world of extreme inequalities that will improve uh, mothers' lives and infants' lives. And that one more epigenetic study, we're demonstrating a link between um, different exposures isn't going to um, change those fundamental findings, like you said, about the importance of um, uh, uh, early life health interventions like vaccines, um, access to housing, to food, to education, and to a secure environment. Mm
0: In your book, you mentioned um, the political advocacy of eugenicists and the law they tried to pass to advance their cause, that is, laws that attempted to prevent those they believe shouldn't reproduce from reproducing. Um, In the modern day, how does politics similarly influence research priorities and their translation into political arguments and policy outcomes?
1: Mm, Yes. Um,
0: Anytime that we're talking about
1: issues of Um, fertility, um, demographics, uh, the um, economic maximization of investments across areas of public health. We're living in the legacies of eugenic discourse. And the core idea here is, of course, to maximize human flourishing. But we also have within this discourse um, ideas of, Better and worse bodies, problematic people that shouldn't be produced, right? And so you produce a discourse of ordering and ranking bodies um, that are more, that are better. For example, mothers, better gestators, and others that produce weaker or less efficient. In the language of some of the individuals I quote in the book, um, offspring. In in this environment of extreme de facto inequality, including lack of access to basic health services, um, and in a world where uh, many people struggle to have the resources postnatally to raise children, um, we, this, these claims of you know, the small differences in epi- epigenetic risks of uh, small change in diet within a population of normally distributed, healthy births, um, are not likely to contribute to the uh, valuing of all mothers and their ability to produce the reproductive lives, have the reproductive lives that they would like. Mm
0: -hmm. Chapter six of maternal imprint focuses on social and scientific focus on birth weight. Can you walk us through this example? Specifically, why is it that black infants have average low birth weight compared to white infants?
1: Yes, uh, I have a whole chapter on birth weight because of course, people uh, thought that birth weight might prove to be a simple metric for analyzing adversity during the prenatal period. So it's really the first biometric that evolves into wide use as a way of um, reflecting on the prenatal period. And that begins the modern era of the research that I look at in the latter part of the book and that indeed characterizes the field today. I focus on about 40 to 50 years of scientific debates about how to interpret the racialized birth weight gap between black Americans and white Americans. Um, Records going all the way back to the 19th century suggest that there has long been this gap and that although the average birth weights of both groups have gone up over time, the gap has still sustained. And in some periods it even widened. At first, the explanations for this drew straight from racial science, arguing that these black babies simply had a different genetic or biological set point compared to white babies. Um, They even printed up charts to be pasted on the pediatrician's wall so that they didn't accidentally describe a low, uh, a, a small black child as being low birth weight, which is something to reflect on. These biological claims were overturned by a series of studies in the 1950s and 1960s, actually led by some prominent African American pediatricians from this period, and underrecognized, um, who did studies demonstrating that within Black populations, birth weight varied quite considerably depending on social class and access to prenatal health care. This exploded the idea that the difference was. A racial one, demonstrating that actually the birth weights of wealthy African American babies and white African uh, white babies were equivalent. But then we entered a period of thinking about more uh, diffuse possible causes, um, social environmental causes of uh, birth weight, as uh, well as other variations, and the story simply gets extremely complex. Needless to say, um, there were ways in which later theories reinscribed race into the model, um, suggesting various uh, measures of prenatal exposures as a non-genetic theory of the persistence of some continued um, birth weight gap, uh, even among uh, wealthy Black Americans. Um, and then later research, uh, found that there are so many ecological factors in determining birth weight that it's not a good variable for comparing it across populations and not a reliable variable for looking at prenatal exposures. And that is how we get to the focus today, not on birth weight, but on this mechanism called epigenetics.
0: Right. Wrote quite a bit on the history of the policing of pregnant women, especially the way women faced incarceration and the loss of their children along racialized lines in response to the seeming dangers of drug usage during pregnancy. Um, In the contemporary era of increasing precarity of Roe versus Wade, um, how might scientific claims about maternal fetal effects lead to further backsliding in reproductive justice?
1: This is an excellent question. I do think that there is a way in which work on the prenatal environment that suggests that this is a critical one um, could be drawn into laws that are extending protections that once started with child well-being to the fetal period with the increasing volume of scientific papers asserting the possibility of harm during the fetal period. right? So there is a way in which this science could come to support fetal personhood and fetal neglect laws that have been harmful to restricting women's access to reproductive um, interventions during the prenatal period. Very broadly, I do think that these proliferating scientific claims about the small effects of small exposures um, extend an environment of surveillance that is restricting to uh, women's bodies. So a few years ago, the CDC, for example, suggested that any woman uh, of reproductive age uh, whether or not she is having sex um, should uh, uh, use birth control um, because of the high rates of drinking. So the idea is one would never want to accidentally have a, uh, <laughs> an embryo in one's womb when out for a naive drink. Uh, so this suggests that uh, every single women should be on birth control um, if they're going to drink. So I, uh, (laughs) I do think that it has direct implications. These sciences circulate in a world in which women's reproductive bodies are policed and in which fetal personhood is a tool that is used to restrict access to technologies such as abortion. And so it is something to keep our eye on.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You describe how maternal effects research is in part an expression of social alarm, about how women of reproductive age act and how this might influence their babies, giving the example of the website beginbeforebirth.org. Could you say more about this website and also the social alarm um, in general?
1: Yes. Unfortunately, the website is down and I don't want to take credit for that, but it seems like it has been taken down, but it it ran for more than 10 years. It was created by the Wellcome Fund in uh, the UK, um, which is kind of like the NIH. here. It's a major funder of medical research there. And it created a website, Begin Before Birth, which was, it seems, an effort by their scientists to educate the public about new ideas in maternal fetal effects research. The website opened with a video of a, a, an adolescent wearing a hoodie, let's just say, um, who is sort of like looting and ransacking. And there were these riots in, in London and in the UK around the period this was made. And then it tells a story, Charlie's story, about how if his mother had not been stressed, while he was in the womb, he would not be the criminal, burgeoning criminal adolescent that he was today. It then goes on to a tutorial in the new science of epigenetics and includes a video game where you can, uh, I think it's that you, you play a, a, a sort of word game and every time you make an error in the word game, your baby, mouse on the screen sort of gets an epigenetic hit and it gives the idea that um for every small change in your behavior or your stress level your fetus will directly feel that and get a hit an adversity right um and it is well if, if you weren't stressed out before you played the game you will be afterwards mm-hmm. Um, And uh, that is the direct message and readout of that game and other modules on the website. All this is to situate for the reader of the book, the listener here, um, just um, how proscriptive um, the idea of these kinds of epigenetic risks is, and then to set up a set of arguments I want to make about how the claims made about these findings go very far beyond what they've uh, demonstrated.
0: Right. Could you explain how proponents of epigenetics believe um, how fetal programming research examines the effect of epigenetics in the maternal fetal environment? Specifically, could you describe the importance of uh, methylation here? Yes. So, um...
1: So proponents of this um, theory um, argue that um, we might be able to find evidence of a fetal exposure and its link to some later effect um, by looking at small changes in the uh, volume of something called methylation at particular locations in the along the genome. And methylated sites um, can help regulate gene expression. And so if they're highly methylated, they might stop uh, the expression of a particular gene. And if they're under-methylated, that um, form of expression might proliferate. So scientists have been examining, using similar tools to gene sequencing, the location of these sites and how they vary from individual to individual, and then correlating that. With uh, different outcomes. So how this goes in a fetal programming hypothesis is perhaps there's an adversity like undernutrition during the prenatal period. This then alters the responsiveness of the genome to its environment, creating set points for programming the genome so that it responds to the world in a particular way. This later could be adaptive or it could create illness depending on the later environment experienced. So epigenetics is thought to provide a direct determinative biochemical mechanism for bringing about the later outcome of interest.
0: Right. We're almost at the end of this episode. Um, but before we end, would you like to tell our audience what you're currently working on? Well, sure.
1: I direct the Gender Psy Lab at Harvard, and we continue to examine um, how sex is operationalized as a variable in biomedical research, how gender can be incorporated into biomedical research, and how we can study the interaction between the two. And we continue to think critically about sex difference claims in biomedicine. Um, we, we reanalyze those claims and examine alternative possible theories for findings of sex disparities. We've engaged quite a bit with the uh, COVID pandemic, looking at sex disparities claims in that context, Um, and we continue to engage with the NIH policy on sex as a biological variable, helping scientists and others think about how to attend to sex-related biological variables without reinforcing binary biological sex essentialism.
0: That's another extremely important project. Thank you so much for this extremely fascinating um, and enriching conversation, Sarah. I'm, I'm so glad we did this.
1: It was a pleasure, thank you.